here's what I now know that we, I mean humanity, don't know. So we don't know about matter, all that stuff outside us. I mean, 96% of the universe's mass is unaccounted for. I mean, sure, we're calling it dark matter and dark energy, but honestly, that's just code for no real idea. We don't understand consciousness or the stuff inside us. I mean, yes, there are theories, but no one is really sure why or how consciousness works. And we don't even understand time. I mean, we don't know when the universe or how the universe began, and we're not even clear how it will end. Again, yep, there are theories, but really nobody's quite sure. So as much as I'm a fan of the scientific method, it is clear that there are gaps. So spirituality then, it's not an alternative to science exactly. I mean, it's not a straight substitution for one for the other, but spirituality does seem separate from science. I mean, faith, if that's part of the spiritual mix, by its nature doesn't ask for evidence. Now, I've considered myself an atheist for many years. And honestly, Instagram spirituality, if that's what I can call it, you know, great looking trappings of enlightenment, well, that not only holds no appeal, it kind of drives me crazy. But I find myself nonetheless spending a lot of time with people who have a more grounded, less performative sense of spirituality. And that I'm curious about. So, what does it mean to someone who's made spirituality? the very foundation of their life. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. KC, that stands for Christopher Carter, but I've always only known him as KC, is a coach for C-suite executives and also startup founders. I met him when he was cutting his teeth, actually working and shaping the culture for a tech company in the marketing and advertising space. Now, since he's become a coach, he looks at the usual strategy and productivity and profit, sure, but his focus really is on mindset, mindset that flows from spirituality. The commonality with most of my clients is they're on some sort of spiritual quest. Uh, they're trying to increase their capacity in some way. There's like the usual, you know, relationship to time, relationship to resources that we all struggle with, but they're trying to find deeper meaning in their work. So spirituality, less about the guru and kind of who you worship and more about meaning, or perhaps it's about connection. I was touring as a bassist in a ska band, uh, kind of the furthest path from anything spiritual, I would say at that point. And, um, you know, as I, as, as I started my earlier career, kind of figuring out how to, you know, navigate corporate work life and providing for a family, I got further and further from, you know, any type of connection to myself, to any type of higher power, to spirit. Casey has always been a bit of a self-development, personal development nerd. Those are his words, not mine. I mean, you remember those cassettes you could buy off late night television with, you know, Tony Robbins or Brian Tracy and the like? Well, he bought them all. He consumed them all. And actually doing this personal development work is where he found his path beginning to change. What I started realizing after consuming all of this pretty voraciously was that where the personal development path seemed to end, the spiritual path kind of began, meaning like 
a lot of these teachers uh, were kind of talking about the benefits of self-reflection, silencing the mind, meditation. And that was kind of the entry point into the spiritual path. And then, you know, another couple decades into that, it just kind of keeps unfolding for me. And so I never really started out to find a spiritual path that kind of found me. So personal development focused on the self, on the personal, just as it says on the label, and spirituality going beyond the self. Okay, I understand that in theory, but honestly, I'm still struggling a bit to figure out how I'd actually do that, how I deliberately put that in place in practice. In, in yoga and Western cultures is usually regarded as like tight pants and nice abs kind of you know downward facing dog stretchy flexible yoga yeah. which is great like it has many many benefits but uh the yoga we'll talk about from from autobiography of a yogi it, it's really kind of the science of the spirit and, and by science i mean that there are deliberate practices that have provable predictable results and those results are really grounded in just expanding our container expanding our spirit if you will or giving us access to our soul uh some, something that in many ways we trip over day to day, yeah. but spending more deliberate time to to kind of deepen that relationship. Got it. So it feels like this might be a, a segue to the book you've chosen for us. So what is this book? Yeah, Autobiography of a Yogi. Have you ever read it? I feel like I've seen a movie of it. Is that possible? There's a great documentary from 2014 called Awake, The Life of Yogananda, which is, mm -hmm. which is kind of an objective view of his life right in the united states and they talk about autobiography of yoga it's not it's not a film adaptation of the book got it no. got it so i've seen i've seen that documentary um so so i know the smallest part about this but how did this book come into your life you already hinted about why it's important to you yeah it, it's kind of funny it's one of those it, it's kind of like the quote um the pima Chodron quote nothing goes away until you learn what it needs to teach you <laughs> This book kind of clobbered me over the head in like 50 different ways to Sunday for about eight years. People were saying, oh, man, I read this book. I think you should read this book. I think this is your book. Casey, read this book. And then finally, while our son was being born, my wife was in natural labor. Mm. I was finishing this book. And I was astounded by all these stories of, of you know, highly advanced yogis leaving their bodies at the time of death. They were consciously withdrawing their spirit and leaving their human form in lotus posture, sometimes before thousands of witnesses. I was just mesmerized by how badass this was. So I was trying to read, I was reading my wife these things and she's like, don't talk about death while I'm trying to give birth, you know. I was just enthralled. And and over time, it's, it's one of these books I can't really stop reading because it just keeps right. opening up. And uh, I realized that uh, on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, yes. I mean, most of us have stared at all those faces at yeah. some point. Yeah. One of the best album covers ever, and albums like totally. Bar None. Uh, totally. But but um, it's interesting that four of the gurus from the lineage of from Yogananda's lineage, and uh, I'll, I'll hold it up so you can see it, Michael. But oh, these nice. yeah. there's there's four of these faces that are um, included mostly because of George Harrison's love of this book, and George George Harrison's given lots of interviews about the book and how the book kind of zapped him with yogananda's eyes and he felt yeah. compelled to read it so I, I realized that the book in some form or fashion was kind of following me around since i was three looking at that album cover right and um and yeah every time i put it down it finds its way back in and uh so so when it came to selecting a book that i've had to you know wanted to read numerous times i'm probably out of my 12th reading of it um it was kind of like a no-brainer that i had to share at least part of this with you i love that before i get you to read the two pages let me ask you this. Has it 
Actually, no, you know what? I'm going to save that question. I want to hear what these two pages are. First of all, I want to hear how you chose the two pages, because if this is the book you've yeah, read 12 easy. times, you're like, yeah. right. clearly there are, there are many moments of resonance here. So how did you pick the two pages for us? Yeah, well, and, and it's funny, when, when, you, when, when people feel really in tune with this book, they kind of keep reading it. So I, I've met some yogis that are um, maybe in their 80s that mm -hmm. have never stopped reading it. Steve Jobs famously read it every year of his life from the time he was 17 to when he passed away. And right. he was he was a Zen Buddhist, so why would he read a book on yoga, you know? Yeah. Um, but um, the other night, I, I went through just all of my dog-eared sections of the book. And so I was up till two or three in the morning, just rereading <laughs> and loving every section, thinking like, this is the section. Right. And, uh, but, but for the purposes of, of your podcast, I thought it was more powerful to kind of just show a little bit of who Yogananda was. Right. There's two, there's two big, um, challenges most people have with even attempting to read this book. One is the suspension of disbelief because there's so many miracles in it. It's like, you know, people trying to read the Bible literally, mm. um, that there there's, you know, if I, I really encourage people to try to suspend disbelief and just read it as a, an account of a remarkable life. Yeah. And then the, uh, the other, uh, <laughs> the other kind of challenge people have with it is like the really old flowery language. Cause it was mm. published in 1946 and Yogananda was obsessed with, he spoke three or four languages. He was obsessed with the English language. So the use of the word ejaculation for <laughs> one gives people a lot of pause. Like, so I've, I've recommended the book to so many friends and clients. They're like, I was not prepared for that many ejaculations. Well, it, it, it's actually an expression, like an unbridled expression of glee. Yeah, you know? so, yeah exactly. But, so, Which is true uh, on so, yeah, so many I, levels, but yeah, I get your point. <laughs> exactly. So as uh, a synonym, homonym, but I, um, I literally chose this passage based on just showing Yogananda's mission to unite, to Beautiful. bring the ancient science of the East to the West. All right. Perfect. So Christopher Casey Carter, author of a new book, Permission to Glow, reading from Autobiography of a Yogi. Casey, over to you. So just for a little bit of context, this section is from the chapters, the years 1940 to 1951, and Yogananda was looking back on his life and his mission in America, reflecting to a temple leader there in San Diego. Tell me truly, Paramahansaji, has it been worth it? This laconic question was put to me one evening by Dr. Lloyd Kennell, a leader of the temple in San Diego. I understood him to mean, have you been happy in America? What about the falsehoods circulated by misguided people who are anxious to prevent the spread of yoga? What about the disillusionments, the heartaches, the center leaders who could not lead, the students who cannot be taught? Blessed is the man whom the Lord doth test, I answered. He is remembered now and then to put a burden on me. I thought then of all the faithful ones, of the love and devotion and understanding that illumines the heart of America. With slow emphasis, I went on, but my answer is yes, a thousand times yes. It has been worthwhile, more than I ever dreamed, to see East and West brought closer in the only lasting bond, the spiritual. The great masters of India who have shown keen interest in the West have well understood modern conditions. They know that until there is better assimilation in all nations of the distinctive Eastern and Western virtues, world affairs cannot improve. Each hemisphere needs the best offerings of the other. 
In the course of world travel, I have sadly observed much suffering. In the Orient, suffering chiefly on the material plane. In the Occident, misery chiefly on the mental or the spiritual plane. All nations feel the painful effects of unbalanced civilizations. India and many other Eastern lands can greatly benefit from the emulation of the practical grasp of affairs, the material efficiency of Western nations like America. The Occidental peoples, on the other hand, require a deeper understanding of the spiritual basis of life, and particularly of scientific techniques that India anciently developed for man's conscious communion with God. The ideal of a well-rounded civilization is not a chimerical one. For millenniums, India was a land of both spiritual light and widespread material prosperity. The poverty of the last 200 years is, in India's long history, only a passing karmic phase. A byword in the world, century after century, was the riches of the Indies. Abundance, material as well as spiritual, is a structural expression of Rita, cosmic law, or natural righteousness. There is no parsimony in the divine, nor in its goddess of phenomena, exuberant nature. The Hindu scriptures teach that man is attracted to this particular earth to learn more completely in each successive life the infinite ways in which the spirit may be expressed through and dominant over material conditions. East and West are learning this great truth in different ways and should gladly share with each other their discoveries. Beyond all doubt, it is pleasing to the Lord when his earth children struggle to attain a world civilization free from poverty, disease, and soul ignorance. Man's forgetfulness of his divine resources, the result of his misuse of free will, is the root cause of all other forms of suffering. The ills attributed to an anthropomorphic abstraction called society may be laid more realistically at the door of every man. Utopia must spring in the private bosom before it can flower in civic virtue, inner reforms leading naturally to outer ones. A man who has reformed himself will reform thousands. The time-tested scriptures of the world are one in essence, inspiring man on his upward journey. Thanks, Casey. It's wonderful. There's a there's a lot there. Is there something in that passage in particular that speaks loudly to you right now? Oh, definitely. I could tell you what's highlighted. Uh, and first of all, two pages in Autobiography of a Yogi is actually four in a way because the footnotes are their own book you know <laughs> right it's so deep and rich in in uh indian history and, and all these other footnotes but but the the highlighted lines i have are right at the end a man who has reformed himself will reform thousands mm -hmm. and um that that's my experience and finding sobriety I, I live and work in the birthplace of alcoholics anonymous right and uh i never chose that path of recovery but yoga helped me in, in that recovery. And that line always stuck out for me. And I also love the, the very last line, the time-tested scriptures of the world are one in essence. Uh, just speaks to Yogananda's openness and love love of all true religions. You know, mm -hmm. he was really a, a student of all faiths. One of the one of the lines that resonated there for me was, you know, we're put on this earth to learn. Um, that's why we show up. Um, I'm curious to know what where, what you're learning these days. You know, where where's your place still to be learning here, Casey? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I um 
I, I was thinking back on this conversation this morning as I was preparing for this, and you were one of the first people I spoke to when I was leaving my corporate life. Remember, and yeah. that that transition, you know, with a family in tow, I have three kids and, and a wife of 22 years, and to make that 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 bold leap into the wilds of entrepreneurship and starting your own business, when I did, it was it was scary, mm-hmm. and I would say that that piece of kind of finding and owning my own voice is is the, the biggest thing I've had to work on over the last four years, just kind of surrendering into how humbling that whole process is. Right. And, and also uh, really leaning on spiritual practice as uh, kind of an anchor during all these wild times. Because it wasn't just that I chose to make the leap at that time. The world has gone a little crazy <laughs> in that time too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so- I noticed uh, some of that. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, right. You may have heard. Uh, I, I thought it may have been limited to America. I've tried to dig a tunnel from Ohio to Toronto. I don't know how many times, uh, but but now it's starting to level out a little bit. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I would say it's it's that it's it's owning owning my power, owning my my voice, and putting that in service of others. How do you connect to your power? Yeah. How, what what's that process been for you? Finding your voice, connecting to your power. It's not. It's not a light switch that you just turn on. I'm curious to know what the work is that's got you from there to here. Yeah, you know, and and, and this isn't this isn't uh, um, a segue or plug for the book, but like literally, it's what I had to outline in the book, Permission to Glow, mm-hmm. is that most people I think hire coaches to access their power. Uh, what I call permission to glow in the dark, like throwing the switch and, and yeah. being at full power, or or mainly. Being in your power, despite all the ever-present fear, I think is what most of us experience. Right. But but mine really starts with the earlier two, what I call the first two permissions: permission to chill, which is to quiet the mind; meditation, to to be with what is and let that silence speak to you a little bit. Right. And then also permission to feel the feelings, which is to just own our messy, beautiful humanity, be vulnerable in our feelings and what's coming up for us and be honest with ourselves. And I, I'd say most of my, you know, ongoing work or and or breakthroughs, if they do happen on personal power, happen around that second one, which is just trying to be real, st- stop trying to prove and to perform and just try to be um, with, uh, you know, the, the, the simple, powerful authenticity of who we are. Yeah. Um, you know, for a childhood performer playing in bands, that could be the hardest roundabout way to get to our personal power because because I'm trained to get up on stage and do the thing, you know, yeah. but but in, in business and in coaching, I think it's more about those earlier two. Well, I, I mean, I you've got this kind of four-point manifesto and, you know, permission to chill, feel all the feels, glow in the dark and glow in the light. And it's a, I, I love all of those headlines. They, they're, they're tempting and make me curious, all of them. Feel all the feels is the one that always pulls me in because I'm a head guy and I'm a bit of a performance guy and the feelings are a bit more elusive. If there are, just say there are some other people like me who are a little disconnected from the fields. How, how do you help yourself? How do you help others feel all the fields? What does that, what does that really mean? Yeah. So, um, what I know about you is is we, we share an Enneagram number. We are Enneagram sevens, right. and we are the high, highest of the mind types, which is, which is not a compliment. 
It's right. like a <laughs> over-processing supercomputer, right? And and sevens are kind of magical and mystical, but but we would kill to be in the center of something like the heart triad. Like teach me, teach the tin man how to feel. Like that's how I that's how it lands for <laughs> right, me. Right. You know, uh, so I have to usually get to my feelings through a lot of over-processing cerebral thought. And um, you know, all of my coaches are just and my wife, of course, is just so curious about like how does that work for you? Um, <laughs> But, but feeling all the feelings for me has been just the, um, I, I look at it as the, the pathway for me has been self-acceptance, mm. surrender, the, 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 the work it, it's, it's filed like down the deep corridor of soft skills, yeah. you know, to have a breakthrough in self-trust or self-love, but just the, the courage it actually takes to surrender into self-love and self-acceptance. I mean, self-acceptance prior to self-love is truly a path that has been a path for me into feeling the feelings and when you when you build up when you build that upon kind of that first permission of, of quieting the mind and just find like taking yourself back to neutral and then give yourself the permission to feel whatever's coming up like accepting yourself if you're completely pissed off if you're completely you know in grief if you're completely um being petty yeah um it, it gives us it gives us that access to kind of like that deeper level of our humanity that, that I don't think I can always get to through just my brain. It's too exhausting. So accepting yourself, because when I hear that, I tend to step back and go, you know, I'm looking at the entire package and you're okay, but you're, you're speaking about something else. You're actually something about accepting just who you are in, in a particular moment. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in real time, practicing self-acceptance. I mean, this is, this is a great little practice to notice at the end of a meditation after you've done the work to kind of clear the mind a little bit or wrestle mm. with it a little bit is to do, do some work or processes around that self-acceptance. Yeah. One of the other lines that struck me from the, the pages that you read Casey was, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, but something along the lines of I've been lucky enough that the Lord has placed burdens in my way. <laughs> Yeah. And that's a that's an intriguing line as well. How, how what are the burdens that have helped shape you in terms of your path? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, how many of us treat we we get so used to treating the things that we used to take for granted that mm. we've now accomplished and now we start treating them like some sort of burden, you know? So uh, I I can't tell you how many times I've been become present to my, you know, privileged white man's burden over the last five years of like, oh, I have this huge yard to mow and I got, somebody has got to clean the pool. And it's just, it's ridiculous. But I, uh, I'd, I'd say the biggest one that, that, that gets me uh, in the field sometimes is just the, um, I, I had a very dear spiritual teacher and, and friend, ally, Alice Bandy. She passed away a couple years ago and, and she was truly a gifted clairvoyant. Like she, she shared some things that were just impossible for her to know. Mm. And so so when somebody who has some level of spiritual insight asks you a ridiculous question like do you want to know how many times in your past lives you've been a monk? <laughs> like just wild questions. Like who wouldn't want to know the answer to that question? I don't know what to do with that information. But I was like, yeah, Alice, you know, and she said she said nine times. Right. And and she said when you have a monastic path, a monastic spiritual path is like a single point of focus. She said you've 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 passed away early. Mm. This, this life is about the dual burden and responsibility of being a householder and, and doing your best, whatever you can to work your spiritual path. And that has been, uh, in some ways, the biggest burden, right. 
tremendous responsibility and also all the biggest gifts are in there, you know, because it's the stuff that I get to share with my kids. It's yeah. the stuff that I get to try. You know, we, we share a friend, uh, the amazing Eric Klein. Mm-hmm. Him and I are so simpatico because he's walked a very, very similar path, like being a householder yeah. while also being a spiritual teacher in a corporate environment. Right. And uh, so he was another one of those early allies that just helped me like, is there a, a, an owner's manual you could hand me for this? Yeah. Like, I don't know where to start here. The other of the of the four, I'm not sure what you call them, the four permissions in your in your manifesto. One of the ones that attracted me. I mean, I like glow in the dark, and I like glow in the light. Actually, I want to talk to you about glow in the light. But actually, let me ask you this question first. How did you find the word glow? When did that come up as a a, a precept for the basis of what you're doing here? Yeah. You know, maybe about six years ago, I started using the phrase glow in the dark and mm. I didn't know what it meant at the time. I had to reinterpret it right. many times over the years, especially in writing the book. And and the reason I, I chose glow in the dark, I just like the power, the audacity of being willing to do that. And and if I received any positive feedback at the time as a performer or, or leading events, you know, for with, with uh, Good Life Project or some of these other things I got to do, it was that unapologetic full expression. You know, I'll pull out my guitar in corporate environments. I'll get people to meditate. I just, whatever, by any means necessary, let's play. And I thought that that's what glow in the dark meant. And in reality, it was what I said earlier, which is the, the, the courage to be yourself despite the ever-present fury. Like I, I hadn't yet entertained the darkness. And what became so interesting was the contrast of the glow with the dark. You know, as a as a fellow writer, I'm always curious to know when you find the phrase and when it moves from just being a this is a good throwaway line to actually this is more central. Was there a moment when glow when you suddenly went, you know what? I think glow's at the heart of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I um, I, I named the book. I shortened it to Permission to Glow because I think some of us crave some aspect of that. You know, whether it's to, to be confident, to be audacious, or to find our unique path that kind of seems to light up and glow. And, um, you know, I've had so many people trying to talk me into renaming the book Permission to Shine. I was like, haven't a million people wrote a million crappy books called that? <laughs> and uh, there, there's something amazing about a, about the word glow, too. Like, I think of dimmer switches. And in my yeah. house, lighting really matters. And I think mm. of candles, and I think of dimmers and I think of the source fader on a DJ's mixer Mm. and you know one of the things I write about in the book is that we could live our life from default which sounds more like the crappy shopping soundtrack at like an old navy store like the Muzak (laughs) wallpaper or you could fade that source fader over to the permissions which is kind of like that throbbing club banger you know like the music of the spheres and I I think that that the glow implies a gradient versus just the you know, the flipping the switch, because it's not that simple. Yeah, exactly. It also, for me, captures a different type of light. It's not it's not the kind of harsh LED light. It's got a kind of a warmth and a depth to it that is different somehow. Yeah, yeah. and let's be honest, like a lot of times we're, we're running on a pilot light, you know? It's right. like whatever we could do to keep that sucker lit, right? And uh, and, it, and at times when, when the situations call for it, when we, when we step out beyond ourselves, mm. like that's what I think most people, you know, we, 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 we 
we feel so alive in those, uh, so alive and so on purpose in those moments. And yeah, that that's what I was trying to capture with the language. But thanks for thanks for tuning into that. Glow in the light is the unexpected one for me, the fourth mission. And yeah. as I understand it, it's about recruiting allies and helping build community. What's the secret to building community, Casey? I'm not that good at it. I'd love to hear how you think about it, how you think about recruiting allies. You know, it's, uh, gosh, it's it's kind of the million dollar question. And honestly, the fourth permission scared the crap out of me. <laughs> it, when, when somebody suggested it, like, what if glowing in the dark isn't enough? Wh what then? And then I, I had to really grapple with, you know, if there's a divine plan, what would that divine source want for us? Mm. And I think it would want collaboration, cooperation, transcending competition of resources. You know, Yogananda spoke about it a little bit in that passage. Yeah. And in, in my experience, I, I've never considered myself a huge community builder. You know, I you know, a good friend of mine, Jonathan Fields, he's brilliant at it. Right. Uh, I, I, I've coached other leaders who have no problem snowballing into hundreds and thousands of followers. But the the thing I was looking for in the fifth permission, or I'm sorry, in the fourth permission was to the leaders that have done the work of glowing in the dark, you know, chilled, felt their feelings, accessed their, their authentic expression that in itself is enrolling and helps you find allies. It's magnetic. It, it draws other people to you. And, and it doesn't always draw the super cooperative, easy people. You know, I see this on executive teams I work with. They are cooperative components, mm -hmm. but a lot of them are very asymmetrical. And I think that and when I take a step back from that, the, the the really effective leadership teams are the ones that aren't some sort of carbon copy of the leader. They're they're, they're kind of like that team of rivals that Abraham Lincoln had in his cabinet. Um, so so the fourth permission, as I understand it right now, is about just doing doing your own individual work as a leader to attract and enroll those angels and allies. And they do always show up, you know, like I you offered to talk to me after I left corporate when my head was spinning. I did not know where to begin, you know. Right. Karen Wright shows up in my life, like, you know, these these real kind of teachers that help light the path and uh and that's that's what I think our work is to do is to surrender into that you know kind of bigger cooperation. Part of the challenge, Casey, with books like yours, which are a manifesto for change, is part of your heart glows and goes, "Oh, that sounds good," and part of your heart sinks because you go, "Ah, it's hard. It's, stuff is hard, and it's a burden." You know, like coming back to the, yeah. your reading, it's it's it, it's. Am I really up for that? Because honestly, it might just be nicer just to carry on in the groove that I'm I'm already in. Uh, how do you how do you make change less of a burden, or does it just have to be hard? Yeah, the, the book ends with what I needed to read maybe thirty years ago, which is the seven compassionate laws. <laughs> of lasting personal change. Because I think like all that rah-rah personal development stuff I grew up on in the eighties that I freaking love. It's yeah. like, it's got that, like that energy of like, uh, like a, a dance aerobics competition from the eighties, like super, like I can do this. You can do this run through walls, achiever stuff. Yeah. And what, what it's lacking is the self-compassion piece. Mm. Uh, because, because there's no way around it. 
life on this physical plane is hard. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of misery and, you know, carving your own path is maybe 10 times, 20 times harder. I'd, it'd be much more convenient for me to be pulling down a corporate paycheck at the moment. Um, and that work of, of those first two permissions is what I heard your question, which is why should I be willing to sit still for a certain amount of time each day or to, to make time for this, this working on myself. And, yeah, none of it's hard, but with, with self-compassion, self-compassion to me is, the, is kind of the lube that greases the wheels <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and also makes it all worth it, you know, is that, um, you know, you've been really outspoken. I, I love your sass when you talk about what makes a good book and what makes a bad book. Like, it's been so awesome to watch that evolve. And I feel like that came out of your experience writing the first, how many ever versions of The Coaching Habit, yeah, yeah. Y- you know, and and, and your voice was in my head a lot as I was developing the book. It's like, there's a million books on a million shelves. What will make this helpful? And it, at the very root of it, I was like, the thing I needed to hear was that the process of change can include a lot of compassion for yourself, for all the other people on that journey who are trying and failing a million times. And that's the only thing that you know helped me turn off alcohol back in the day and yeah. create any of the changes in my life have come from that like slow, frustrating, but rewarding path. And I mean, people talk about compassion and vulnerability and the like, but how do you access it? Because it feels like it's so easy to go, yeah, compassion, compassion. And then you just beat yourself up for not being compassionate enough. So, you know, like, ah, it's not working. How do you, where's, where do you, where's the well you draw from to find compassion? You know, I think it just all starts with the awareness of when you're not being the opposite of compassionate to yourself. Mm. You know, we're so used to riding ourselves like some crappy little horse jockey, like <laughs> faster, faster, more, 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 faster, faster. I mean, that's how I ride myself. And uh, just the awareness of, oh, not super helpful. That's, yeah. the, that's the entry point, you know. And then there's a bunch of, of little practices. I mean, the, the one that I do when I, when I leave my office every day is to just do a quick little replay as I walk to my car or my scooter. What, what transpired today? What, what mm. did I create? What, what, what crossed my desk? And, and then it just presences me to the, to the very real fact that um, I'm doing valuable work. Yeah. It's important, you know, because it's not always easy to find meaning when we're having a day of taxes or expenses or whatever. <laughs> I hate those days. Um, Casey, this has been a great, wonderful conversation. I knew it would be. Um, as a final question for you, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? You know, the thing that hasn't been said that, it, that it's just ever present for me that, that I get asked a lot is is it uncomfortable bringing a spiritual conversation into corporate spaces? And the answer is, oh, hell yeah, incredibly (laughs) uncomfortable. But the the nature of this work is to kind of set up shop in the discomfort zone. And, um, you know, I I do a lot in the beginning of the the book just to kind of, you know, even in selecting these pages about, you know, how much talk of God was too much for this type of Mm -hmm. venue or audience or whatever. And it's not a topic that a lot of people are comfortable with. We all, myself very much included, carry a lot of baggage around spirituality or TV evangelists, whatever. And uh, I just wanted, I was hoping to, to distinguish between all of that noise about what spirit could be and just the direct experience of it that mm. we could find it through very time proven you know intentional practices 
I'm touched by the idea Casey talked about, which is claiming our burden. In the new book that's coming out, coming out in January, by the way, I talk about it as finding and setting your worthy goal, which is, you know, honestly, probably an easier sell than picking up your burden. But claiming your burden, claiming the right burden, that's good. What that has at its heart is the belief that we're here to do work, I mean, good work in this world. Being an atheist, I think this is it. This is our one go around. What happens after our death is honestly just like what happened before our birth. Not much. So this time now is a tiny moment in the darkness. Don't fritter it away. Claim your burden. Do good work. And perhaps this is what it means to be spiritual. Two other great conversations that will vibe with you if you like KC's. Well, one is a recent one from Stephanie Harrison, which is called How to Be Really Happy. And also check out Tom Vanderbilt. That episode is called How to Be a Beginner. And that tells how he literally and figuratively embraced the beginner's mind. If you want more about KC, This Epic Life is the website to go to. And so his book, Permission to Glow, you can find more about that at permissiontoglow.com. But also, of course, for purchase anywhere you buy your books. And I'd encourage you to choose your independent bookstore before you choose Amazon. Thanks for listening to the podcast. It's always lovely to have you here. Lovely to have you as a listener and a contributor. Thank you if you've joined our free membership site. That's the Duke Humphrey. You can find out more about that at the website, mbs.work slash podcast. Thank you if you've left a rating or a view on your podcast app. That is really helpful to help the podcast get heard and found by more people. And thank you just for being awesome. You're doing great.